It's Acts chapter 20, verse 28, through the end of the chapter. That'd be verse 38, page 930 in your pew Bibles. This is in the middle of Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian elders in the port city of Miletus. We read a portion of it a few weeks ago, um, but you've totally forgotten that by now, so you might have to skim to catch up, but we will read the rest of this passage as Paul speaks to these elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, He knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray as we have prayed this simple prayer a few times. Lord, what we know not... Teach us what we have not, give us, and what we are not, make us. Amen. Snowpocalypse has, oh, sponsored by Costco, right? You realize that. So Snowpocalypse has rearranged schedules and plans, and the sermon preaching series is no different as we uh, aimed to finish up our study in Acts 20 and move into Ephesians. That's been now postponed and we're still navigating uh, next week. So stay tuned. You've been waiting for Ephesians for 15 months. You can wait a few more weeks. But read ahead, uh, study and, and get it, digging in in your own study to the word of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus as he speaks to these elders in Ephesus. And it would be a great blessing to you. I know it'll be a rich and powerful sermon series. This exhortation to the Ephesian elders is both powerful and practical for us. We looked at Paul's example and saw that faith takes risk and risks. It takes risk to walk by faith and then God calls us to take steps of faith that are risky. So it seems like a natural next step with this week in between that we had uh, to see that leadership is also risky as Paul addresses these elders and warns of the dangers that will come to them just by being faithful to the Lord. And so we'll look at some of the dangers of leadership that make it risky. Even though he's speaking to church leaders, he has the entire church in mind, and certainly so does Luke as he is recording this. He writes to the entire church, and so we receive also from him, even though we are a few millennia removed, 
It is applicable for church leaders and the entire church also. Some sage advice to young, aspiring pastors, advice that I received when I was in high school, uh, exploring potentially a call into ministry and what that might look like for equipping in school. I remember a pastor saying to me, if you can do anything else, do it. And it's been advice that I've given a number of times as young men are exploring or even older men are at a crossroads wondering about giving their life more fully in a vocational way to serve the Lord, serve the church, or move into uh, missions in some capacity. If you can do anything else, do it. And that's not about an ability. It's about conviction. And maybe even more than that, it's about being compelled. And Paul said that back in verse 22. You can look back. We didn't read it this morning, but look back to verse 22 when he said, I am constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I'm constrained. What he's saying is, I I can't do anything else. I'm so convicted that the Spirit is leading me, even against the warnings of good friends, that this, but, but, but Paul, if you go there, this is likely going to lead to your arrest and maybe even your own death. And Paul essentially says, so be it. I'm ready. I've been living my whole life this way. I'm constrained by the Spirit to do nothing else. I've already given my life to the one who gave his life for me, so let it be. That's what it means to be constrained by the Spirit, compelled by the Spirit, called by the Spirit to the work of the ministry. Now, I realize that this doesn't seem like a great recruiting strategy in a day when we're desperate for more godly leaders, really in all places, but even and maybe most of all within the church, and Union Hill is no different. Well, why in the world would we set a bar so high? Why, why not lower that bar and take any man or woman who can fog a mirror and is willing? Well, we can't do that because the Scripture doesn't do that. The Scripture has an incredibly high bar and requirements for its leaders. And so we maintain, along with Scripture, the same bar, but we are also encouraged by what Paul says here in verse 28. He says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, has made you leaders. The Holy Spirit has. So it's, it's less about our choice when it comes down to it. It's more about the call of God and discerning that call. Don't you love the rest of verse 28? A Trinitarian call. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers in a way that only the divine could do to care for the church of God, that's theos in the Greek, the church of God, which He, God, obtained with His own blood. Who died on the cross? God died on the cross, His own blood. So there's a Trinitarian call that those moving into a significant service to the church. It may or may not be vocational, maybe bivocational. It may be uh, it, that unfashionable term, laity, which simply means they're not compensated directly, but they may give just as much. All of that, that is ultimately a call by the Trinitarian God to serve the bride, to serve the church. And when you, when you are called, you will know it. You will, you will be able to say, like Paul said, I'm constrained. I cannot do anything else. Well, how do you know that? 
If you can, through prayer and wrestling, if God is stirring and nudging you to serve in a greater capacity, and you come right up against that call, perhaps to pastor or to elder, and you say, I'm not compelled. I'm just willing. And you can walk away in peace, then grace and peace be with you. It is either not the call or not the season for that call. Leadership is costly, and we should count the cost. It may not cost our dying breath, but it will for sure cost time, energy, emotion, our margins, our sense of freedom potentially, or maybe even our reputation, and certainly not a little sleep, and maybe many hairs from our head. It's right to count the cost, but it's also right to count the reward and to consider it deeply. The privilege of giving your life to serve that which Christ gave His life for. The joy and confidence that comes knowing that the Holy Spirit is working alongside you and through you to serve and to make impact. Experiencing perhaps some of the closest bonds of friendship that can be experienced because in those roles you will be invited into people's greatest celebrations and maybe deepest hardships and trials, most significant events and greatest sorrows. You'll be invited to be present or to walk through those things with them. The hope that comes, the hope from, of hearing from the Lord, well done, my good and faithful servant. There is great reward. And knowing both the cost and the reward as we wrestle with the call is an important thing. Paul said to Timothy, Paul, knowing full well the cost and the reward, he said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, this, this saying is trustworthy. So this has become a common saying by this point. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. I may re-preach on some of the, the leadership structures and terms that are used. It's worthy of another sermon. I've preached on it before. There's ultimately, in, in short order here, three primary terms for offices at the highest level in the church. In the New Testament, overseer, elder, and pastor. And they're ultimately used synonymously for the one role. So hold that in mind as you hear overseer here, as you see elders uh, that Paul is speaking to in Ephesus, uh, and you think about pastoring as Paul uses that image of shepherding in that context. They are one and the same role. So Paul says, though, if you aspire to this role, to this office, you desire a noble task. So remember here that Timothy, when Paul wrote this, Timothy was now serving in Ephesus. So the church, we've seen its planting. We're seeing now that it's growing. These elders come who love Paul deeply. The church is thriving. It has good leaders. Later, Timothy, one of the best of the best, will lead that church. And yet Paul is saying, you still need more leaders. That's why you're there, to raise them up, to train them, to commission them for the broader church. They still need more leaders being equipped and appointed. You know, in my experience which is relatively limited, but is growing. This aspiration, desire piece is often the defining moment 
for a man moving into a potential eldership. In exploring, maybe responding to an invitation to explore that. Maybe looking at, clearly looking at Scripture qualifications, wrestling with that. Then ultimately, I fall way short of that. But maybe recognizing nothing ultimately is disqualifying. A man who is mature, is humble, is recognized even in a local body as one of, one of its elders. And yet that man says, ultimately, as I come right up to the edge of that call, the invitation, I have no aspiration and no desire. And he may even pray, I want to have that. I long for that aspiration and that desire, but right now it is not being given. There's something about the aspiring and desiring, knowing the cost, considering the reward, and stepping into that call, being constrained by the Spirit to do so. And that a few men that I'm thinking of specifically, some you would know, so I won't mention them by name, have come right up to the edge And with encouragement, I've ultimately pushed them back. And there's been a deep sense of peace and gratitude. I said, that is then, therefore, not the call. Thank you for the willingness. Turn and serve according to your gifts in the body. It's not an option to serve or not serve. But they might sense that they've dodged a bullet, and maybe they have. But ultimately, they've sensed a clarity of call for that season. We're all called to serve the body. Peter said, 1 Peter 4.10, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. And Paul would say to this same church in Ephesus, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 11, that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. There are many giftings, there are many roles to be played in the body, and they are all essential for the health of the body. One is not greater than the other, they are different. There's a variety. Paul speaks of that in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. If you were to look at the elder uh, qualifications here that we've defined, we've got pages written on it. We've also tried to succinctly put it onto one page to capture in keeping with Scripture both the qualifications which measure us, the convictions which unify us, and the aspirations which motivate us. And if you're interested in seeing that document, I'd be happy to share. I don't believe it's published uh, online. And maybe God would be stirring you uh, to explore, uh, to respond to an invitation that I know as I look out that I've given to some of you directly and others maybe the Spirit is stirring in. I invite you to explore that and recognize that you will come up to a point where you will be compelled and constrained by the Spirit to move in into a deeper capacity, and you will then be affirmed by others, or you'll come up to that edge and be able to say confidently, that aspiration and that desire is not there right now. And maybe you step back and continue to pray, but you'll have clarity in your call, and that's a good process for any and all of us. Let's consider some of these dangers as we focus in on specifically this passage and the dangers that bring the risk of leadership And again, he's speaking to elders, but definitely applicable to all leaders and important for all believers. 
Now, depending on what the Holy Spirit is doing, you're probably going to engage the rest of this sermon uh, differently. If the Holy Spirit is nudging, maybe likely he has been, and now as I'm speaking on leadership, he's nudging even more, and you're, you're going to be counting the cost. That's a good thing. Uh, perhaps he is constraining and compelling, and now here's what you're getting into. Let me be clear. And for those of you that have a pretty sure confidence that there's zero aspiration or desire to step into leadership in this kind of way, uh, you're probably already asleep. But if not, wake up, be thankful for your leaders, pray for your leaders, help your leaders, and don't just be a dumb sheep. We are one with you. Somehow we're called to be these shepherds as sheep, but don't be a dumb sheep. While the elders may have a responsibility, uh, they may have an accountability uh, that is unique and different, clearly as called out in Scripture, they are not meant to lead and to serve exclusively. And sheep, all sheep, should be able to recognize a wolf and at least give out a good bleat. So... That said, let's look at some of these dangers that Paul calls out. Uh, I'll maybe summarize them in three ways. Dangers that are around, dangers that are among, and dangers that are within. Around, among, within. Dangers around. As we think about the church as a whole, and then even local churches, it seems like it's being attacked uh, at all angles, from all places, but ultimately we can simplify and recognize the church has one enemy. There is one enemy, and he has one method of attacking the flock. He's crafty, but he is singular in focus. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 8, be sober minded, be watchful, for your adversary, singular, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Think of the flock, the sheep with the shepherd, and this lion who's lurking in the shadows, looking for the weak, looking for the one who strays. Don't be that one. Stay with the, within the body, under the leadership and oversight of the shepherds. In John 10.7, really this is where Peter is picking up this imagery, is from Jesus himself. The good shepherd who speaks of the flock. It's just one picture of the church. There's a number in Scripture, but the flock imagery and the shepherd imagery does run through it. And in that culture, it was understood probably a little more than we understand it. We did good work on that theme in our study in John's Gospel. But in John 10, verse 7, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. For the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. There's a, one adversary, one enemy. Verse 12, he is a wolf who snatches and scatters the sheep. Same language, same imagery. One primary enemy, one primary method this roaring lion who sends wolves, he hasn't changed. So where do we see him first attacking God's people? Way back here in the garden. And how does he go about this? What is his method? He seeks to distort and twist God's word. God has spoken and made promises 
The adversary seeks to twist that. Did God really say that? Are you sure? He goes after God's character. Is God really good? Can he be trusted? Ultimately, what he says today over and over again is what he said to this Ephesian church and every church, is God's word to be trusted? Is the whole counsel of God's word authoritative and necessary? He seeds doubt and distrust of God's promises and ultimately God's character. And that has not changed. It is the same. We have the same enemy with the same method. Perhaps he hasn't needed to change because his tactics still work just the same. You know, we have one response to that. We declare the whole counsel of the Word of God. When Paul spoke to this same church in Ephesus, many of you probably know the passage in Ephesians 6, uh, the armor of God. He speaks of our battle against this enemy, against the, in the spiritual realms. And he says, you have armor given to you. You are clothed in that way. You're not vulnerable in Christ. And he speaks of this armor we have, this breastplate, this belt of truth, this helmet, the shield of faith, the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And he says, there's one weapon you have. You have one weapon. What is it? This is Ephesians 6, verse 17. Take up the sword of the Spirit. There's your weapon, which is the Word of God. That is your one protection for defense and with the shield, but the one weapon of offense that we have, the Word of God. And by the way, I think this has been called out. Uh, There's not much to protect our backside in that imagery, so stand firm. We're told to stand firm. We've got all that we need with the power of the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And by simply standing firm on the Word of God, certainly in a changing culture, we're seen as more and more radical by simply standing firm. And yet we're also meant to advance into enemy territory. If the enemy is the ruler of the world, he owns places. There's darkness that pervades. Where we have opportunity, it's probably a whole different sermon, but we are told to advance. We have what we need. We have been told to go. Jesus himself said to Peter, the gates of hell will not be able to stand up against the church. There is one that will be victorious. So where we see that and have opportunity, we take faith-filled risk to go, knowing we have all that we need in the promise of God through His Word. So there's dangers that are around us. We know that. Probably don't have to beat on that too strongly. We have one recourse to stand firm and proclaim the whole counsel of the Word of God. It is our sword. It is our strength. Paul also warned about the dangers among us. Now this is really unnerving and even scary to consider. Because what he says next, verse 29, I know that after my departure, this is what happens. This is just what happens in the church. Fierce wolves will come in among you and they will not spare the flock. From even among your own selves, you believers, will arise men speaking twisted things. Ultimately things they know not, that are not in accordance with the whole counsel of the word of God to draw away disciples after them. These are the dangers that come from 
within. Jesus said something similar. Matthew 7, this is the Sermon on the Mount, verse 15 and following. Beware of the false prophets. They come into you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So how can you tell the difference? One, you can smell wolf's breath when you're close. You need to be in close relationship with one another to recognize. But what Jesus says is you will recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in their life? To do the Lord's will. Even some of these same false prophets, Jesus called out and said they would come to him in that day and said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And even perform signs and miracles. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. We never had relationship. You never submitted to me as Lord, Savior, and King. So we don't discern based on signs or wise-sounding words or miraculous bents or leanings. We discern by the fruit, ultimately the fruit of the Spirit that is evident and growing in one another's lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Where that fruit is evident and growing, it must be the Spirit is at work in our life. When other fruit is what is peeking through the leaves, to use that analogy, mixed metaphors, when we see the fruit of pride, Self-righteousness, legalism, bickering, slander, division. We could go on and on. Maybe the wool would be removed from our eyes. What is our recourse? I think we go too far to the extreme. We're called to protect the church as elders, as overseers, but we're called to do so in the same way. We proclaim the whole counsel of the Word of God, we stand upon it. There's more to be said there and in specifics, but without getting into specifics. Leaders have one primary responsibility to preach and teach the whole counsel of the Word of God, to not turn from it or deviate from it. You know, when the church grew and we first saw that that structure challenge in Acts 6 of what to do now with all of these believers and all of these disciples. Remember what the apostles did? They appointed what we would probably say were the first deacons within the church to serve the great needs that were arising amongst people, especially amongst widows who had nobody and nothing. And so the apostle said, uh, Peter said, Acts 6 verse 2, it's not right that we uh, elders should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. He's not saying one is greater than the other, but the call and the role uh, that they were called to, to preach, if they were to move into these other ministries, was going to be diminished. And he says, that's, that's not right. We have that call. There's a greater body at work here. So, find men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we'll appoint them to this work. We don't need to do it. We should be the body. The body is at work together, serving and using according to their gifts for the health of the church. 
But we, verse 4, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's our call. And so we can get probably overly distracted on the work of wolf hunting instead of the focus on the preeminence of the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, the whole counsel of it. Verse 7 of Acts 6, The Word of God then, as they put this into place, it continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem as they focused on the teaching of the Word. This was a still primary issue in Acts 20. It's still the primary issue in Ephesians when Paul writes to Timothy. So nothing's changed. Have you noticed that theme? Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, and he says the same thing that basically he said to the elders in Miletus. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom... Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. Did you hear that? People, all of us, have a tendency to become fixated and passionate about parts of the Bible. This isn't, Paul, Paul is not primarily talking about crazy, heretical, other spiritual beliefs. He is saying, within and among yourselves, those who know the Word, and believe the Word, are going to start listening to the lies of the enemy and twisting it. They are going to diminish parts of it and become fixated on only certain sections and become passionate about just those things. And they will become spiritual nomads. They will be wanderers. They will have no grounding. They will find no place to truly exist in fellowship and community. This time is coming. Paul saw it 2,000 years ago. We need the whole counsel of the Word of God. The wolves in sheep's clothing will, have, will be impotent in their power when the flock trusts and follows and knows the whole counsel of the Word of God. That's our focus. We're not called to be wolf hunters We're called to be preachers of the Word of God. The enemy seems to know no other way, and it seems that he needs to know no other way, as I said earlier, because he continues to have success in this method. But neither do we. We remain true to the whole counsel of the Word of God. An often quoted maxim is, you may have heard this or said it yourself, God said it. We believe it. That settles it. I think maybe we should just knock out that middle part. God said it. That settles it. Now how will we follow it? One more danger that Paul highlights, and this isn't an exhaustive list, certainly, and it was 
the summary, I'm sure, of the message that he gave to these Ephesian elders. But Luke wanted us to hear this, and Paul warns of the dangers within. There's dangers around, there's dangers even among, but the dangers within. That's in our own hearts. We read between the lines a little bit and going back to the last message when Paul spoke of his own integrity, his vulnerability, his transparency. Again and again in this passage, he says, you know how I lived among you. You knew my life. You saw me. I showed you. For three years, you saw my heart. He invited people in. That's risky in and of itself. We talked about that. But as leaders, maybe even more so because the dangers within us are just as great as all believers who wrestle with the sinful flesh and their own desires, but maybe become magnified as we step into roles of leadership, as if we become less human. And so sometimes the trap that comes from the dangers within us, A.W. Tozer said, do you know who gives me the most trouble in ministry? Just myself. We come into this trap sometimes, I think, of uh, with our own sins. We struggle, and the sins that would be quickly forgiven by friends, by brothers, by sisters, even by the church, we keep hidden. Maybe for fear of letting down those that have affirmed us and encouraged us into a role. Likely there's a pride mixed in there of not wanting to be seen as lesser. And it's, it's just... It's just a, a small thing, but that sin may fester and linger because we haven't walked the process that we're all called to walk of confession, of repentance, of transparency, of vulnerability, of integrity. And so that festers. And while, this, while the, the enemy would love to bring the storm and topple the leaders and crack down the mighty oaks and cedars, the pillars of the church, a disease that comes internally and rots from the inside out is just as deadly. And he's fine with that. The result is the same. And so there's dangers within because our sinful flesh continues. This is why Paul began the exhortation this way before even giving them instructions for the church and the dangers around and the dangers among, he called out the dangers within. Pay careful attention to yourselves. This is the same thing he would say to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 again, this is verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, and by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Pastor Robert Murray McShane said it well. He said, my flock's greatest need, he was responding, what's the greatest need in the body? Oh, my flock's greatest need is this, my personal holiness. That's their greatest need. That's my prayer, pray for me. Leaders are under attack, maybe with a lens, a magnifying lens of focus by the enemy, because if he can break the leaders, their holiness their marriages, their families, he can damage and scatter a flock and then pick them off. First on the list for elders, twice when Paul does list the requirements for elders, is that they would be above reproach. Not that they would be sinless, but that when they sin, 
They walk in that quick rhythm of confession, of repentance, of transparency, of forgiveness, of grace. Paul warns on a couple sins. It's interesting, as I was dwelling on this, and certainly many places throughout Paul's writings, he calls out a number of ensnaring, dangerous trappings of the sinful flesh. But here, with these elders, he really seems to call out, I would say, two, coveting and pride. And as I looked at this and thought, that seems out of place, coveting, I recognize that to break, to covet is probably one of the greatest temptations for a leader and someone in true vocational ministry. And it must have been for, for Paul. And I, I'm not even speaking of materially coveting what others have. Not that pastoral ministry is all that lucrative, and so that it might be easy to covet what others have, but coveting the freedoms that others have. The freedoms over their calendar, their nights, their weekends, coveting the uh, the freedom from carrying that burden of knowing deeply the pain, the trials, the sins, the suffering that people are going with, being free of that. There is a longing sinfully, it's a coveting of being able to cast off the call. And it really struck me in a way that at first read, do not covet, sounds like do not want the material blessings that other people have. Be content with what you have. And while that is true to the leader who is giving their life to the body, it's a different kind of coveting that we wrestle with. And so I'm asking God, explore that within me where that exists the danger of pride, although you would say you read this, you see Paul proclaiming his work ethic, his diligence, his perseverance. You saw how I worked, my hands provided for my needs. So work hard like this, give, be generous. Like, well, how is that, how is that pride? I don't think he's speaking against laziness. Well, certainly that's an issue. But I think he's speaking about the pride that comes from a certain gifting and a certain potential for affirmation or acclaim, to believe even that your gifting is greater than others, stay humble, Paul says. Work right alongside. Don't take anything for granted. Your gifts are not any greater, they're different. And so he urges these elders, while they are called to be faithful to the Word and to prayer, follow the model of Jesus, who serve people, was with the sick and the poor and the needy, continued to pour himself out and give himself away. And you might say, well, that still seems like a stretch to put under the banner of pride. But verse 30, I think, clinches it. From among your own selves, elders, from among you will even arise men speaking twisted things, not in alignment with the whole counsel of the word. Why? Why? To draw away the disciples after them. The pride that comes in wanting followers. We have one business to make followers of Jesus. To be like John the Baptist who said, I must decrease, he increases. My name can disappear. 
But within the heart, especially of leaders, is that potential lurking danger of pride that seeks first to attract followers to Him. Maybe even in the name of Jesus. And so Paul warns of this danger within. We have one weapon. Any surprise? Anyone know what this is? The same weapon for the dangers within that we've been fighting with for the dangers around and among. It is knowing and living God's Word. This is what Paul says, verse 32. Now, now that you, you know the call, you're compelled by it, I'm warning you of these dangers, here's what's to come. I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace. His Word is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. To give you all that you need. And he finishes by saying, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Remember His words. When he quotes that, it is more blessed to give than receive. That's not even found in the Gospels. That's a word that was spoken directly to disciples and had had become a common saying. The same weapon for us within, the same for leaders, the same for every believer. The sword becomes like the scalpel. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. I'll insert, like a scalpel, it divides even soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning thoughts and intentions of our heart. Let the ministry of the Word, Paul says, come into your own lives. Watch your life. Watch your heart. We dwell upon and meditate upon His Word. We hide His Word in our heart that we might not sin against Him. So you say, is this a sermon about, about the dangers of leadership? Or is this a sermon on the primacy of the Word of God? Absolutely. And so let's finish, as I check the clock, rather abruptly, let's cut off this sermon. But let's, be, let's end where we began, yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What is the Holy Spirit doing within us We've invited Him to speak, to work. Is He nudging? Is He convicting and compelling? Is He urging us toward a course of action as we respond? I'll invite the team to come and be prepared to lead us in response. Jesus said in John 14, 26, Receive this, church, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom we've been singing about and inviting to come, this Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Exactly what was happening in Acts 20 as He's proclaiming God's Word and His promises. So Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, so let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Whatever God is calling you to, we heard Janine proclaiming this following of God's call in what she would probably say, and maybe some of you would say, is a simple way, but it's not. It's significant. A life of faith that has said yes just to every step comes to a point where it says Yes to this. That's following the call of God. 
It's a season. So is God calling you into something? Is He speaking through His Holy Spirit? Bringing to mind His Word? We must respond to that. So this prayer I wrote that we'll finish with. Constrain us, Holy Spirit. Whether you're making us into leaders or just better followers or both, give us no other way and no other desire and no other aspiration but Your will and Yours alone. For Your glory to be known and to be seen through us, Your church. Amen.